everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are very excited to speak with David Quinn, who's an assistant professor of education at the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California, so the USC on the West Coast. <laughs> That's right. The Gamecocks, I think. David, we're really pleased to have you because you completed a great study about what you called the achievement gap discourse. Why don't you tell us about what that is? And then I'm quite excited to chat with you, given my history running schools in the heart of the South Bronx, ostensibly to close the racial achievement gap. Yeah, great. And I'm excited to talk with you about that as well. Yeah, so the, the achievement gap discourse, that's, that's not a, a term that I coined. It's a, a term that's been used in the literature from Gloria Latson Billings and Roderick Carey and others. And it refers to, you know, probably what a lot of people imagine when they, they hear the term. It, there's in education circles and in education practice and policy and research, we hear a lot about racial achievement gaps, income achievement gaps between group differences on, you know, test scores, graduation rates, things like this. Often when we talk about these gaps, as you said, it's, it's within the context of attempting to close the gaps and to advance racial equity or equity by SES in education. But there, there have been some concerns that there can be some negative unintended consequences of the way that this discourse frames those inequalities. And so that's what I've been looking at in my research. Yeah. I mean, if you look at virtually any organization in education reform, they will explicitly say we exist to close the racial achievement gap. And, you know, some people even say it's the civil rights fight of, mm -hmm. of our generation. So there's a lot of value placed on it. And it's typically between black and white students. Right. Yeah. But so what is it that sounds like it should be a good idea, which is to close those gaps and, as you say, create racial equity? Why in the world would that have a negative consequence? Well, there, there are lots of criticisms that, that people have been made and lots of reasons to be concerned. I mean, one thing is, you know, just has to do with the way that the problem is framed. So when we talk about an achievement gap, we're drawing attention to student level outcomes. So test scores, student graduation. And by framing the issue as one about, you know, student outcomes, it draws people's attention to what the students are doing and can lend itself to explanations that, well, it's the students are doing something wrong. The students, they're not capable enough, they're not motivated enough, or you know, their, their parents don't value education enough, instead of focusing on the structural inequities that lead to the gaps in things like, like test scores. And so in doing that, one issue is that we're placing undue blame on students rather than structures. And that can also lead us to solutions that aren't getting at the, the root of the problem. Well, why are those two things at odds with each other? Looking at student behaviors that may not be leading to good outcomes, in addition to structural barriers that contribute. Why, why are those two things? Why is it one or the other? Well, I mean, it's not one or the other. I think it's a matter of, of emphasis. And so when the frame is about the achievement gap, the emphasis is on students as opposed to structures. And so if that's where the attention is focused, then that's leaving out you know, a lot of policies that can be doing, advancing a lot of good in terms of getting at the, the roots of, of the problems. Another issue, and this was the issue that 
my study was most directly focused on is that the talk of the achievement gap can lead to exaggerations in racial stereotypes. So if we're talking about a black-white gap, leading to the stereotype, perpetuating the stereotype that black students are, are not capable enough to achieve at the same level as white students or Asian students. And that, of course, has implications for student performance and for the investments that policymakers make in, in these schools. You know, if we think that it's, the problem is that students are just not capable, then, well, why bother investing in lowering class size or, you know, things like this? At, you know, the school level, when teachers and administrators and educators are buying into these stereotypes, that affects the expectations that they have of students, which in turn affects the outcomes that students demonstrate. So let me ask, like, I mean, what what do you see as the alternative here? I mean, in some ways, the talk, the sort of gap talk that's maybe started more concentrated in the world of education is now extended to everything. Now we talk about, you know, the disparate impact on everything from incarceration to poverty to everything in our society. It seems like we want to measure the differences between and among races. So I guess my question is, what would you suggest as the alternative? Do we want to just tamp down talk about racial differences generally or, you know, focus on making everybody achieve, you know, better results educationally? What would be the alternative way of talking about these issues? Yeah, well, there, there are a few alternatives, and I think that it, it will depend on the context and what the goal is and, you know, what, what we're trying to do in the conversation to begin with. You know, when it comes to education specifically, I think that a promising alternative to talking about achievement gaps is to switch the frame to opportunity gaps. And, you know, this is something that a lot of researchers have advocated for, you know, Richard Milner, Prudence Gardner, and Gary Wellner. So this is, this is not my idea. But the point here is that, you know, we recognize that the reason why we see achievement gaps in large part is because of differences between race, between socioeconomic groups, in the opportunities that students have to learn. And that's, you know, where we can make the most impact in closing achievement gaps is if we're looking at the differences in, in opportunities that, that students have. And in stressing opportunity gaps, we don't have this negative consequence that I saw in my study of perpetuating racial stereotypes by talking about the achievement gap. So I, th I think that, that that's one thing that can be useful is to reframe the problem. But, you know, when it comes to another issue here that I sort of alluded to earlier about the achievement gap framing is that it's sending the message that the problem is that Black students, Black and Brown students are not achieving at the level that white students are, which suggests that, you know, white students are the ones who are setting the standards and whatever it is that they're doing, that's what everyone else should be doing. In reality, you know, if, if you look at the NAEP scores, just as you know, an academic benchmarking kind of an exercise, the performance rates of white students is not where we should be setting the bar. I mean, that's not- We're all terrible. To raise, exactly, right. So it's, it's not setting the bar in the right place. And in doing that, it's also sending a message that you know, there's, a, there's an inherent superiority to whatever it is that the white students are doing, and that's what you know, everybody else should follow. So, David, I make the point that you just made repeatedly, because just, you know, just put some numbers into what you're saying in the entire history of NAEP, you know, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, the nation's report card since 1992, 
there has never been a situation in which a majority of white students are reading at proficiency at fourth grade, eighth grade, or 12th grade. So this, so the constant focus on the black-white achievement gap does exactly what you just said. We should really be talking about the Korean-American achievement gap. Exactly. <laughs> that would be much more productive use of our, of our educational resources. Right. Well, I'm actually starting to formulate a theory around what I call distance to 100, which is the distance of all kids to 100, because only a third of all kids in our country are reading at grade level, right? So how, David, how do we make that shift? Because what you're talking about in some ways actually fuels what we often talk about, the soft bigotry of low expectations, because mm-hmm. we're constantly hearing that black kids are on the short end of the divide. It must be that these, you know, these black kids are either weighed down by genetics or they're weighed down by structural barriers, right? How, how do we fight that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, the first step is kind of what you were alluding to there is that. We, we set an academic benchmark based on what we want students to be doing, not in order to close the gap between this group and, and some other group. And in terms of, of framing, that actually, you know, the research suggests that that is the more effective way it actually, if your ultimate goal is, say it is, to, to close the gap, you're actually going to be able to do that more successfully if what you're, you're doing is setting a high standard that you're leading students towards. But, you know, I think... The reason why people focus on achievement gaps is that they are the result of you know, contemporary and historical injustices, and those injustices need to be redressed. And when we see that there's an achievement gap, what that's telling us is that, well, there's been you know, historically you know, opportunities that white students have had for education that Black students have not had. That's why we see the gap. That's why we track it and we try to close it is because we think that in doing that, we are redressing the injustices that led to it in the first place. And so, you know, that's a worthy goal in, in my mind. I think that those are injustices that need to be redressed. But framing the issue as one of closing the achievement gap leaves out, you know, that whole longer story and the, the motivation for being concerned about the gap to begin with, which is that it's existence is rooted in those injustices. But do you do you worry about a lot of people that talk about, you know, the no child left behind legislation and and it was sort of terrible in all sorts of ways, but one of the things that I think there's a lot of agreement on that it did right, at least if you're you're concerned about these things is that it disaggregated the data. Mm-hmm. And so states were forced to come to terms with even if they had, you know, some particular population of high achieving students they were covering over essentially, you know, using averages, a lot of students who were really underperforming. And to see those pieces of data, I think, divided out by race, I think really made people, you know, sit up and pay attention more. There are obviously, as you say, you know, sort of bad, bad consequences to having this conversation about the achievement gap. But on the other hand, maybe people need to be shocked into understanding just how big, and I guess we could call them opportunity gaps, there are, but but just how much more poorly certain kids are performing than other kids. It does have a have a way of making people pay attention. Yeah, I largely agree with that. And I think that, again, it gets back to the question of what is the, the goal that we're trying to advance in any particular conversation or any particular instance of invoking the idea of the achievement gap or the statistics of the achievement gap. And, you know, with No Child Left Behind, like you mentioned, it was championed by civil rights groups for you know shedding light on 
these inequities and test score disparities. Because if we want to advance equity, we need to have measures that you know, can, can guide us. And so I think it's important for that reason. Prudence Carter and Gary Wellner in their edited volume, Closing the Opportunity Gap, make an argument which I agree with, which is that we need measures of things like test scores as part of a, a feedback loop when we're trying to advance the goals of equity. So we enact policies and practices that we think are going to have an effect of closing opportunity gaps, providing high-quality education learning opportunities for all students. And then we have measures of what the results were, you know, things like test scores, graduation rates. And that gives us a sense of, well, you know, were we on the right track? Should we build on those successes? Or if it wasn't effective, you know, do we need to reevaluate? So for those kinds of purposes, things like test scores and examining, you know, data on things like achievement gaps can be useful in you know, advancing equity and justice. On the other hand, there are other ways in which you know, those kinds of statistics might be evoked, invoked in, in different kinds of frames that don't have that same kind of positive impact. So, you know, in, in the study that I conducted, I saw that news reports reporting on racial test score gaps, you know, differences in proficiency rates by race, had the effect of magnifying the bias in viewers' racial stereotypes, but did not impact the priority that they placed on closing gaps. Mm -hmm. So we didn't see any of the positive benefit that we would hope to see, but we saw the negative consequence. And so that's why I think, you know, a frame like opportunity gap, you know, when it comes to, you know, things like news stories and trying to build public support for policies that advance equity, the opportunity gap frame is likely to be more beneficial because we don't have that negative consequence of magnifying stereotypes but at the same time, we're getting the issue onto the public policy agenda. Right. I mean, as someone who runs schools, I have seen real terms, the impact of the magnification of the bias without prioritizing more effective instruction, for example. But I got to challenge you on one thing, because I think you've said it probably five times now, where we're trying to achieve the goal of equity. So first of all, how do you define that? Because it seems that each time you say the goal is equity, presumably racial equity, that puts us right back where we're talking about. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because people do throw around the term racial equity or educational equity a lot, and it's not always clear what they mean or, or what they even, if they know what they mean when they say it. For me, when I think about equity or, or racial equity, I think it's, it's useful to think about it more in terms of, of justice, because there is a more well-developed vocabulary around different kinds of justice. You know, so you've got distributive justice. Derek Darby and John Rury in their book, The Color of Mind, talk a lot about dignitary justice, which I think is another important element of you know, racial equity in education. So for me, it's about are the relations among people based on relations of equality? So when decisions about you know, education, distribution of resources are being made. Are those decisions made by people where everyone is meeting themselves in democratic deliberation as equals people of moral worth? And, you know, the historical injustices that I referred to earlier that lead to our present achievement gaps, those were based on unjust social relations. And so, you know, the achievement gap now is a product of those unjust social relations. And so, the goal, the ultimate goal is to achieve just social relations where people are, you know, greet each other with equal moral worth. And under those conditions, 
Well, A, I suspect that we would not see you know, the, the achievement gap that we see today. But you know, any kind of remaining differences and you know, groups, any kind of groups that you might want to slice up would not be based on injustices. And therefore, those differences themselves would not be an injustice. That sounds like equality of opportunity then, though, doesn't it? But what you're describing, what you just described sounds to me like, how do we create, regardless of the history, how do we create an equal playing field today where every kid, regardless of zip code, income level, they've got an equal shot at a great education? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably a a fair way of summarizing it. So, okay, well, so if that's true, then, so then I still struggle then with what you mean by equity. If, if quality of opportunity, what we just described and agreed upon, then what is the difference between that and equity? Well, I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, in, in some contexts, it, it may not be any different. You know, there are ways of thinking about equity that I think would not necessarily be just. So, for example, if we say our goal is to close the racial test score gap, and so we want to advance racial equity in you know, educational outcomes, then suppose we found out, okay, we could effectively do that if we had a federal mandate that black students need to go to school all summer long, they need to go to Saturday school, and that would you know, be effective at closing the test score gap. Maybe, maybe. Right. So hypothetically, say that we knew that that would be you know, the outcome of that. I think most people would say, well, that's not just, right? To, to mandate that if you're black, you need to go to school during the summertime, white students, you, you can go you know, to, to summer camp and have fun. That could be, you know, if all that you're, you're looking at is here, how can we equalize opportunity in the sense of all groups can have the same average test scores? Well, you might be equalizing that kind of opportunity in an unjust way. And so that's, you know, that, that extra element of the, the justice is what I have in mind when I think about equity. Yeah. I mean, I think it's still worth exploring because again, as you said, as you started, you know, achieving racial equity would simply mean Black kids are going from one level of mediocrity to just a higher level of mediocrity because, you know, the majority of white kids are not reading at grade level. So I do struggle with the concept of equity because it still reinforces this idea that the goal is not one of excellence. And I know people want to sort of equity and excellence is kind of the, the tagline, but they often seem to go be at cross purposes with each other. I actually wanted to sort of intervene on another question here, which is the extent to which talking about these gaps as kind of made by history lets people off the hook today. I mean, if we are really concerned about, you know, creating this equality of opportunity today, what are the policies that are in place right now that are resulting in that gap, both of opportunity and of outcomes? And I think that sometimes when we talk about how these gaps were created historically, that sometimes seems like an excuse on the part of policymakers to not allow for solutions that seem to be working today to close that gap. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's, you know, if we're talking specifically about education policy, I think that it needs to go beyond education policy. And thinking about the historical injustices that lead us where we are today, I think is a way of helping us to broaden our sights beyond just education policy. I mean, there, there's a lot that can be done in the education policy arena to help, if you'll allow me, Ian, to help advance racial equity in, in education. But you know, schools alone and you know, education policy alone are not going to correct for you know, all of the injustices that led us to where we are today. So 
I think in thinking about it in that way, it's, it's broadening the scope of the kinds of policies that we should be considering, which is not to say that, you know, students in schools and educators in schools, education leaders, it's not to say that there's nothing that they can do about advancing improved student learning. There, there obviously is, but those are done within the constraints of the broader social inequities in society. Naomi, I really like that question. Two more questions. One, can equity and excellence really coexist? One. And then two, what happens when we're always viewing all of these outcomes through the sole prism of race, as opposed to race and other factors which are clearly influential, whether it be family structure, income, and immigration so, status. Immigration. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are so many other factors that we know are influential. Like, how does that become part of the conversation? Because again, with monocausality, with only looking at race, it is very easy to assume that the causality related to these racial disparities is solely racial. And so therefore that narrows the universe of the kinds of interventions that ones would deploy. So first equity and excellence, and then this mm-hmm. question about sort of univariate versus multivariate analysis. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the question of equity and excellence, and so this gets back to the point that you were making earlier, I think that these are two separate goals that we should be working towards. And so I don't see, you know, working towards equity in, in the way that I was describing earlier as being contradictory to working towards the goal of excellence. You know, I, as I've said, I think that if we set the standard as, well, we need you know, black students to be performing at the level of white students, that's not the right academic standard. Right. So the, the question of, you know, what are the academic standards to me is a different question from the question of the, the justice of the social relations that are producing the outcomes that we see today. And so, and so we want to be concerned about both. We want to be concerned about, you know, distributive justice, dignitary justice, which are leading in, in my account to observed achievement gaps. And we also want to be concerned with raising levels of achievement for, for all students, irrespective of between group relations. Thank you for that. And now just this idea of looking through all of this data through solely the, the prism of race, as opposed to, again, incorporating some of these other factors that we, again, family structure, immigration status, income level. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, we certainly need a, a complete account. And it depends a lot on, you know, where somebody is within the system and what their comparative advantage is to focus on. So if you are a teacher in a school with predominantly black students, you hopefully have the goal of, you know, providing them with the best education that you can. And in that context, what you're going to be thinking about is, well, you know, am I designing, you know, engaging high quality high standard learning experiences for these students? Am I helping them to understand things like malleable intelligence, which we know can be useful for improving student effort and student performance? You know, these are things that don't have anything to do with analyses of the achievement gap. These are just things that are, you know, what we know about good instruction and promoting learning. So, you know, in that context, bringing questions of racial comparisons not so helpful. If you're a policymaker and you have, you know, control over say budgeting or you know you can decide well how many teachers do 
we hire, what's the average class size? These are different sets of concerns. And so you're going to be bringing in different kinds of factors that are explanatory for you know, observed between group differences. And those are the factors that you'll be focusing on. So it depends on what your position is and what you're in the best position to, to really make an impact with, I would say. And again, just based on your, your research study, which was, again, I think really powerful and very timely, because I think we all need to think more broadly about how we solve these gaps. And I think what your study does, it just helps us all to recognize that there are there are some side effects of constantly positioning, in this case, Black kids on the short end of the stick. I have a feeling, though, that how has this study been received, do you believe, particularly in the education reform community? Because I get the sense that this, what you're putting forth is not something that's often recognized. No, I think it's something that some folks have been talking about for a long time, but hasn't really been part of the kind of broader public conversations in in education. I do think that there's an increasing attention to it, especially, you know, I think after George Floyd's murder, school districts and, you know, just the country generally was thinking a lot about issues of racial justice. And I think as, as part of that, educators have turned attention to, you know, these, you know, what we call deficit mindsets and, you know, some of the negative consequences of frames like the black-white test score gap frame, achievement gap frame. So I think that it's something that people are increasingly paying attention to. And I'm glad that now that I've conducted this study, there is some empirical evidence out there to give us a sense of what the effects of you know, achievement gap frames actually are. Do you worry, though, that the some of the, these results, I mean, it's true that people don't want to talk about the deficit mindsets, but sometimes that has gotten to the point where people don't want to talk about test scores at all. I mean, do you, do you worry that this conversation is going to go a certain, in a certain direction merely because we've decided we're going to stop measuring achievement, not because we're going to stop talking about the racial achievement gap? Right. Yeah, I, I do think that that is, you know, that is a concern that the pendulum could, you know, go too far in, in the other direction. And like, like I said earlier, I mean, for me, the implication of my results are not that we need to stop measuring student learning or we need to like pretend that there aren't, you know, between group differences and educational outcomes. It's really about how do we frame that? Why are we invoking these statistics? And is it part of a broader effort to actually advance educational equity and excellence? David, you've just been really a fantastic guest, and I just appreciate your thoughtfulness around this. And I just have to ask it, given the the current zeitgeist, especially in education reform, of just critical race theory and the implications of it. It seems that critical race theory does want to, hence the name critical race theory, double down on this idea of viewing achievement through a racial prism. One of the researchers you talk about is Billings, who I think is strongly talked about critical race theory. It seems that we're going to be increasing our attention on racial disparities and the assumption that the reason for these disparities are primarily due to whether historical racial discrimination, as you've talked about, or contemporary discrimination and potentially out out other very legitimate reasons why these disparities might exist. Yeah, I mean, I the way I'd answer that would be to say, similar to what I said before, I think that there's, there's a whole 
panoply of causes that we need to be mindful of. And for anyone who, who, who does say that we want to advance racial equity, we need to understand, you know, if you're concerned about test score gaps, you need to understand why they're, they're here. And there are a number of, of reasons why they are. Part of that, as you know, I've been saying, has to do with historical and contemporary structural injustices. But within those structural injustices, there are things that people have agency to do to advance learning, you know, individual students as well as teachers and, and school leaders. And so in those positions, you know, their attention, I think, should be paid on what is it that we have the most agency over. But there's also an additional element of, you know, there's a different kind of agency, which is, you know, more kind of democratic agency, which would be, this is what, you know, Danielle Allen talks about the role of school as promoting participatory readiness or participating in, in a democracy. And if you believe that there are broader structural injustices out there, you can also direct your agency towards working to change those. And so we can also build agency for students, not just to you know, score higher on tests, but also to think critically about you know, broader injustices in society and engage in democratic deliberation about those with, with people who you might not agree with and come to you know, some conclusion about what you think the right thing to do is and then how to advocate for that. And so there's an agency over yourself and your own learning, but then also agency around changing the broader structures that lead to the inequalities that, that we observe. Thank you, David. That yeah, was, thank you. It was very helpful. Yeah. Great. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. I'm Ian Rowe. And you can get our episodes either at the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you again, David Quinn, for joining us. Thanks very much for the conversation.